Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. Last week, we looked at what we can learn about how Christians should expect to grow and change by studying how fruit grows and changes. And um, if you weren't able to hear that message last week, uh, what I shared with our 9 a.m. service last week was if I had to do this all over again, I would have held that sermon for a Sunday where I could have preached it to our entire congregation. Because if you narrow down the, you know, 1,500 sermons I've preached since I've been here, that would be in the three most important messages I would ever hope to communicate to a group of people. So we did live stream that service, archived it in podcast and video form. So maybe go back and grab it, not because it was some type of spectacular sermon, but because it's a principle I wish someone would have sat me down at eight years old and explained it to me. Um, This week, we're going to look at how we can thrive in uncertain economic times through what the Bible teaches us about money, about budget, about living, about saving, about spending. And we're going to extract those lessons from a very short part of a letter that Paul wrote. So if you want to get the full uh, background notes and the resources and some of the more uh, the detail on today's message, you can scan that QR code, download it, and you'll have them. Uh, I need you to vote with your thumbs this morning. Thumbs up means I've heard good news, thumbs down, mostly bad news, thumbs to the side, somewhere in between. If you've heard any news over the last month as it relates to the economy right now, show me with your thumbs the general temperature of the news. Most of it's good, it's average, it's bad. Let me, okay, quick survey says most bad. Okay, just thumbs, people. Some of you are holding up other fingers. Like, don't do that. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Yes, yeah. I would say most of what I've heard has been bad news. Um, there's two vocabulary words that I've had to bone up on, mostly to explain to my 10-year-old who's very aware of these things. And can you guess what two words... I'm thinking of when it relates to most news stories about the economy right now. Inflation, and I heard the other one too. Recession, right? Which is not just simple, you know, recession is not just a definition of my hairline's journey over the last few years. It is an economic term. Um, A basic definition of those two terms. Inflation basically means your dollar buys less today than it did six months ago or a month ago. The average American household in October, it cost the average American household $327 per month more to just buy, to just pay for their living expenses than it did six months ago, okay? And not every American household has had their income increase more than inflation. So what that means is when you go to buy milk or you go to fill your car with gas or you go to pay for a haircut or you go to buy new clothes or you, you go out to eat, it, you're, it's costing you more to buy that same meal than it did six months ago. More to buy that same gallon of gas, that gallon of milk. That's what inflation means. It's a general rise in prices. And the way people usually react, the way we're all consumers, the way we usually react when things cost more money is we start deciding what are the things we can cut back on. That's what we usually do by default. Um, some of the things in life called essentials, you have to pay the bill when it comes. You don't get to debate it, right? You just have to pay it. Your insurance premiums go up. 
You know, you still need milk. You still need gasoline in your car. You just kind of, you don't have much choice. So it leaves us to saying, if I have to put more dollars into those things, that leaves less dollars in my bank account for all the other stuff where I have more of a choice. And so we look at things called discretionary purchases. For example, did you know now, according to um, this, this research is 30 days old. Amer- the average American household now spends less than $20 per month on coffee outside their home. That's a dramatic reduction from over four years ago. And that's actually a healthy sign saying that we're starting to get the idea that if things cost more, we should spend less on things that are luxuries that aren't necessities. That's a good habit to build into. But now let's play that forward. So when inflation happens, most of us are going to spend less on things that aren't essentials, which sounds good until you think there's a lot of people whose jobs depend upon us spending money on non-essentials so they can stay employed. So in, in, when inflation starts to happen, if it goes really fast, it can trigger that other vocabulary word called recession. Now, I don't want to go too deep. I am not by any means a financial expert. Most of you know that. I understand budgeting pretty well. But when you get into macroeconomic principles and things like that, I'm depending upon good research. I'm also going to point you in the direction of the Dave Ramseys and the Ron Blues of the world who understand that more than me. Last thing I'm going to try to do is pass myself off to you as some type of certified, educated, informed financial advisor. I am not that. I'm a pastor. I'm a teacher. I'm a counselor. That's what I do. So I'm going to limit my speaking and using this platform to those things that I can, that I can anchor with solid research and not overstep my, you know, my persuasiveness this morning and speaking in those areas. But, but a recession is measured by looking at a couple different things. We won't spend a lot of time on this. Gross domestic product or GDP, that's everything we produce, also looks at jobs are we are there more people getting hired or more people getting laid off we're looking at job report we're looking at manufacturing how many things that we're producing they're also looking at something called consumer confidence that means how much anxiety or enthusiasm do the citizens in that system feel towards their their economy the, the most recent statistic i could find is about a week old 87% of americans polled are say they have significant anxiety related to inflation. That means consumer confidence is lowering. And when we get more nervous about the future of the economy, what we usually do is we cut back and we stuff money in the mattress just in case and we stock up, we batten down the hatches, we, as Jeff Bezos says, we get ready for that. Well, that means less spending going back into the economy, which means there's less money going into a lot of these businesses, which means they can't keep employing people and so they lay off or they cut back financially or cut back, which triggers even more you see how that cycle works, right? You see how that cycle works. So we define a recession as when you see decline in all those different categories I meant for a period of months. So um, recession just means a slowing down. And then in a recession, we slow down on manufacturing. Companies eliminate jobs or cut back salaries. Sales slow down. Consumers grow anxious about their jobs, their income, and their ability to buy essentials. And I know you're like, Pastor, this is just not exciting. <laughs> It isn't, but can I just give you a perspective just for a moment? This is not new. For thousands of years, 
whenever there's been economic systems, there have been cycles of inflation and deflation, of recession and expansion for thousands of years. In fact, go all the way back to the first five books of the Bible. Follow them through with God's people. You will see that God was faithful to his people in times of economic expansion, right? Come into this new land flowing with milk and honey. Enjoy it. I'm giving it to you. Go plant crops. But there's also, like, how about we go back into the book of Genesis? There was prosperity. Things were going well. And then God raised up a young economic forecaster by the name of Joseph and said, there's a massive recession coming. Get ready now in expansion so you can survive and thrive during famine and recession. Do you remember those stories? Just probably haven't heard it defined in those economic terms. Well, if you go through the whole Old Testament, even into the New Testament, you will see cycles of expansion and contraction, inflation, deflation. In fact, read the whole way through to Revelation, and one of the, one of the things we will read about, that we read about will happen in what I believe are the end-time events and during these times of increased uh, tribulation on the earth. It says that it's, it predicts a period of hyperinflation, that it will cost a day's wages to buy... Uh, Loaf of bread, if you have studied that far. So we understand for thousands of years there's been cycles. The Bible does not teach us to expect the economy that we live under to always be in expansion. To never have inflation. To always lead us to wealth. Or to always stick us in poverty. The Bible teaches us to expect economic cycles. And yet God has always provided since Genesis very simple, basic economic fences that if you and I will live inside of these fences and honor these principles we can thrive during inflation deflation or what I'll call just uncertainty I am not good enough to predict what the next 12 months look like I can't if I could I would be immeasurably wealthy I'd be right on everything I'd always buy stocks and commodities and issues at the right time I'd sell them at the right time I don't know It's uncertain. So rather than spending the next 30 minutes talking to you about what's coming over the next 12 months, I'm just going to say, let's just assume I don't know. It's uncertain. So what do I do then? We follow the roadmap that the Bible has given us that's been tested. In fact, I'll challenge you to do this. After today's message, I'm going to give you some very, during the message, I'm going to give you some very simple, sticky bullet points that you're going to remember most of them. I challenge you then to go look at any of these resources. Do a Google search and filter it by the last 30 days for any one of these sites, Bloomberg, Motley Fool, any of the other ones that are giving financial advice. What do I do to get ready for recession? How do I deal with inflation? And they're going to give you some bullet points. I challenge you, find one of them that doesn't spring out of what I'm going to give you today. In fact, one of the most popular YouTube channels that's talking about inflation and deflation and recession explained to 10-year-olds, here's their advice for how to prepare for a recession. Carefully budget, cover your essentials, eliminate non-essentials, watch your spending, save for emergencies. Every single one of those is in 2 Corinthians 9. And they're the whole way back in Leviticus. All of them. 
It's not like we're discovering anything new. The Bible has been preparing us, and there is a secret to thriving during economic uncertainty. I'll give it to you right now. You don't have to wait. I'll give it to you. You can go have coffee and be first in line at the buffet, okay? Secret to thriving during economic uncertainty, godliness with contentment. That's where it all starts. Pastor, that's not really attractive. I was hoping for something more practical. You must be able to experience. You can have contentment without godliness. If you're not a believer, you can follow all the steps that we're going to take out of the Bible today, and you can live with a certain amount of contentment financially, but godliness with contentment. That's how you thrive. To be content with what you have, whether it increases or it decreases or it stays flat. To be content. To feel like I don't need to have more X in order to be content. And until I have or I reach or I save up or I amass or I retire this amount, I, I must be discontent. You know how consumerism works? Watch any commercial. I'll tell you how it gets you and I to buy things. It says you should be unsatisfied with what you have. And you will remain unsatisfied until you buy this brand new car. Show me the commercial that shows the happy customer before they buy something. And then there's, you know what they show? The miserable person drags himself into the place and now they get these teeth whitening things and their life has changed. Consumerism depends upon convincing you you should not be satisfied with enough house, enough shoes, enough dental floss, that your car is not new enough, your house is not big enough, your cabinets are not modern enough. That your yard is not green enough, that your floors are not clean enough. And this world depends upon you feeling dissatisfied because they know what they know what you'll do and what I'll do. If I'm dissatisfied, I will spend money to fix it. And what most of us end up doing or tempted to do is we spend money we don't have yet to buy things we don't truly need to survive to impress people we probably don't even like. And the Bible says the secret is contentment because then in inflation, when you have to cut back on spending, you're not discontent because you're buying less coffee at Starbucks than brewing at your house. You're willing to do that without feeling like the quality of your life is suffering. When you have contentment, if you have an increase and God enlarges your income or your salary, you get a bonus, you don't feel compelled to have to go spend it mindlessly thinking, now I can finally be content. Because that brand new car you bought eight years ago probably doesn't make you as thrilled today as it did eight years ago. That house you thought would finally make you content probably needs to be repainted and fixed. That brand new kitchen you bought 15 years ago might not be the the leading idea on HGTV now. And if you're expecting something you don't have to supply for you contentment, You're going to be greatly disappointed when you have it. Godliness with contentment is the secret to thriving during economic uncertainty. All I want to do is to show you today is how you can get a handle on contentment in your life. I want to show you God's basic economic fences for all incomes, for all seasons of life, whether you're 8 or 108. And if you're 108, see me later. I will give you an award for that. That's just awesome. Um, 
<laughs> your reward is that you've been alive for 108 years and now you get to deal with this economy. <laughs> Congratulations. You know, like, I want to give that to you today because the Bible supplies it to us for free. Let's go. A um, little bit of context. We're going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 9 today. It's a letter. Who wrote it? Just guess. Paul wrote it. It's from Paul to the Christians that he planted in a church in the city of Corinth. And I'm just going to throw this out there. You're going to love this. In this part of the letter, Paul is talking about fundraising. Aren't you glad you fought the traffic to come to church today? You're thinking, Pastor, I just invited a friend for the first time. You're going to talk about money? Cool story. I worry about those things too. I don't want everyone to wait to the week where you don't invite somebody because I assume new faces here every week. Cool story. First service this morning, I knew that there were some new people here, and I was like, oh, no. It's an economics message, but I'm like, I hope they'll just listen through the whole thing because they should go away better. And so I caught them after church, and I was just, and I, and I won't tell you the whole backstory. I don't want to betray their identity because they're going to come back. Um, I was just making small talk, and I just said, listen, man, I was really nervous because I'm like, oh, I know I'm going to talk about economics today. And I'm thinking, you're probably thinking, oh, the first thing I hear when I come. He says, you know what's fascinating? My wife and I just looked at each other. He said, we had a major argument yesterday about the exact things you were talking about today. So get ready. Here it comes, all right? (laughs) Here we go. Um, Paul's writing a letter about fundraising, but more specifically, he's writing a letter to the Corinthian church as a follow-up to say, um, where's your pledge? Right? They had pledged, this church pledged to give an offering that Paul was going to collect personally and then combined with all the other fundraising offerings he was collecting from the other Macedonian churches, and they were going to take it to a specific city and give it over to a specific group of struggling people. Do any of you remember from our studies in Acts which city they were going to? Jerusalem. We studied this for a year and a half, people. Jerusalem, okay? What specific group of people in Jerusalem was Paul raising money to support? The church, which was comprised of what ethnic group? Jews. So these are ethnic Jews who had converted to Christianity. Paul writes, uh, basically he's following up in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 on an earlier appeal he made to all these churches. He, everybody on his mailing list got, got an appeal. Listen, um, there's, I, I need to tell you about the struggling church in Jerusalem. We all should be taking up an offering. We Greek churches should take up an offering for them, or we're going to take it up there, and I'm going to hand deliver it to them, and I'm gonna, we're going to help them out. And you're thinking, But Jerusalem was the mother church. Why are the little kid churches supporting the parent church? Here's why. In Jerusalem, this is going to make a whole lot of sense to you. In Jerusalem, pretty much the main employer of Jerusalem was something called the temple. The temple. Have you heard of the temple? Okay, (laughs) work with me today. You had coffee. Come on now. The temple was a major employer. Who would, you know, I guess was Amazon the major employer? No, federal government's major employer. That's a different term for a different day. But, you know, think of a major employer, okay? There was one particular group of Jews who ran the temple. They were Jews of the group, the Sadducees. Now, do you remember why they were sad, you see? They did not believe in what? They did not believe in the afterlife, specifically the R word. They did not believe in any form of resurrection, exactly. Now, here's the problem. You have many Jews under the employment of the temple. They were government workers. 
Many Jews in that city were hearing about the message of Jesus Christ and they were believing that message of a, of a man through whose resurrection they have power. And they are now receiving salvation by grace through faith in Jesus and the power of his resurrection. And they are now lives who boldly testify to the resurrecting power of Jesus that did not sit well with their employer. And so what was happening was that tons and tons and tons of Jewish Men and women, under the employment of the temple, upon their conversion to Christ, were being fired from their jobs and pushed out into a workforce where their identification with Christ put them at a disadvantage in the job market. Second thing that happened was, uh, what intersected with that was a massive famine. So now you have inflation. You have the same basic food items are now costing more because supply and manufacturing has diminished. So if you were a a Jewish Christian, you'd just gotten saved and now bang, bang, two massive. You see, we love the the gospel. If you come to Jesus, you know, it's like playing a country music song backwards. Your wife's going to come home, the dog's going to return, and you're going to get raises everywhere. Well, here are these people in the New Testament who are getting radically saved, and the first thing that happens is they lose their job, and now they're facing an economic downturn, inflation and recession in their economy. And Paul is explaining to all these other churches in Macedonia who weren't in those same conditions, we need to have compassion for our brothers and sisters. Their income is insufficient right now to provide for their basic needs. And so we ought to give above and beyond. I'm going to collect that offering and deliver it to them. So that was the context for his fundraising appeal. Well, in chapter 8, Paul writes to the Corinthians about, here's how some of your other fellow churches are doing. And he writes about the sacrificial generosity of the Macedonian churches. Comparatively speaking, those churches, and Paul goes into more detail, you can read it later. He talks about the own financial and poverty crises that were impacting the other Macedonian churches. And he says, you Corinthians would be blown away. Comparatively speaking, you're in a much better economy than your other Macedonian brothers and sisters in Christ. And these other churches, when I sent out the appeal He says, they're not only giving, but they are giving even beyond their ability to give, which means they were not only just giving leftover extra money in their margin, they were, many of them, making choices to give away their grocery money and go without for a season in order to make sure other people could be fed. And Paul says, I want to inspire you. And I also want to remind you, Corinthian church, when I sent out the appeal, you were among the first to say, we're in. And in fact, your volunteerism inspired other churches to get involved. You made a commitment. They've all finished their commitment, but you committed X amount of dollars. And for some reason, your enthusiasm to finish and make good on your commitment has waned. And he says, I want you to excel in all things, not just in how you serve and how you speak in tongues and how you move in the spirit and how your compassion for one another. I want you to excel in all things. He said, and let me be more practical. I've been telling everybody of your generosity and of your pledge, and it's going to make me look pretty bad if I show up to collect the offering that I've told everybody is coming, and it's not ready. And so Paul needs to call them to not only accountability, but he wants to lay for them a solid biblical foundation for giving. So I want to tell you, on a macro level, there's no way to sugarcoat it. This passage absolutely does talk about giving. It'll be familiar to you as we go through it. Most of you have probably heard some of these sentences before. 
But if we'll dig just a little bit down into the soil of this passage, you're going to find some micro-principles that this passage is built upon that's not just related to giving. It's related on how to thrive during economic uncertainty. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, I'm going to read the whole passage in one shot, verses 6 through 10. And I would encourage you later on this week, read Start at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, and read in one sitting the whole way through to the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 9. It'll bring even more out to you when you get the whole context. Here's what he says. Remember this. A farmer who plants only a few seeds will get only a few crops. They'll get a small crop. But the farmer who plants generously will get a generous crop. Now, at this point, friends, has he blown your mind with any new scientific principle? If you plant two corn seeds, you're going to get two corn crops. If you plant a lot of corn seeds, you're going to get a lot of corn crops. Basically what he's telling you, he's he's giving it to you very clearly. Here's the principles. You reap what you sow. You reap after you sow. You reap where you sow. You reap how you sow. And you reap more than you sow. Right there is everything you ever need to understand economically to live inside God's fences. Right there but we'll keep reading. You must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. How many of you heard this? God loves a person who gives cheerfully. Have you heard that statement before? God loves a cheerful giver. You've heard that? Does God love uncheerful givers too? (laughs) We'll leave that one for another Sunday. I can only press so far. Verse eight. And God will how? generously provide, what about these next three words? Don't you love this? All you, what's that third word? Now we like the all, it's the word need. Some, do you feel like sometimes you like to expand the category of needs to be a little bit more broad than maybe what it really actually is? God, I need my HBO Max. God, mama needs two dozen pairs of shoes for all occasions. I need the highest speed internet. I need the PS12. I need the, you know, the iPhone 76. I need. Do you? Need means essential for survival. Yes, pastor. I need. I, because my wife needs two dozen pairs of shoes, and if she doesn't, I will not survive. So I just need to, well, I say that, but I've also seen some fellows that have some pretty significant shoe collections, right? <laughs> God will generously provide all you need. And I love Suba's testimony this morning. I can say unapologetically, and she would agree, the specific type of makeup, and she gave the whole story in the early service. Um, she was, you know, during that time of, very little economically for them. You heard her say, but it was still enough. We look at that and say, no, that's not God's goal for you. The end of the story needs to be, and now you are in the upper class. Not all our budgets are the same, but all our budgets are enough. As long as you're content to live on your budget, not on your neighbor's budget, because you think you deserve that. Content is, I can be content to have a little. Content is also, I can be content to have a lot. I can be content to have in the middle. Whatever God gives me. It says you'll always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. Now, you can only have leftovers if you don't eat everything on the table. Hello? Thank you, James. 
The only way you have leftover to share is if you budget with sharing and giving in mind. Otherwise, you're going to eat your whole dinner. And then when it comes to giving or saving for retirement, you can say, I can't afford to do that. Well, why not? You're living outside of a fence somewhere. You're in more house. Well, well, the lender said I could afford this much house. They're not budgeting on God's economy. Because they're not, they're saying, well, you could afford this much. And you're saying, eh, I don't know. No, come on, do it. It's everything you want. Go ahead and do it. Listen. I've had people tell me that before. Well, sir, you can afford more house than this. You can buy more car than this. You're right. I absolutely can. You know why? I live inside God's fences, so I have options. But I want to do more with that $5,200 than put that sound system in my Honda. I'm 46, and I look like this. I don't need a $5,200 sound system. Now, is it wrong for you to have it? I don't know your situation. It wasn't wrong for me to have it, but what I said was, I have other things I value more highly I'd like to do with that $5,200 than put it into a sound system. I had that option. Whether I did that or not, it was not impacting my giving. It was not requiring me to take on more debt. It did not get in the way of my retirement because I had put all those. I sliced that part of the pie first. Here's the problem. The lender is going to look at you and say, look at the whole pie our computer says you have. Let's make the most important part of that pie your house. Why? They're incentivized to get you to spend more. So you're going to cut that out and say, yep, they said I could make that payment. And what you're going to do is say, well, now I only have this much of the pie left over. Well, I've got to fit my car payment in there. Am I this in there? Am I that in there? Well, once I cut pastor, I can't save for retirement. I can't give because you're doing it backwards. You're giving God the leftovers, not the firstovers. What you do before you go sit down with the lender is you say, the first piece of my pie is what I'm going to give. And now I have this much pie left over. And the second piece of the pie is I need this. I've already got some student loan debt, and I'm going to make sure that I'm budgeting in to take care of that. So that's here. Well, that's a smaller piece of the pie. And I say, okay, here's how much of the pie I have left. I need a house that's going to fit into that piece of the pie. Have I lost anybody here? Why is this so revolutionary? It shouldn't be. The only way you're going to have leftovers is if you budget that way. And it's really, it's not the leftovers, it's the firstovers. Problem is, most of us don't approach our budget that way at all. We figure out how much we want to do on fun, and we buy all the shoes we want and eat out all we want. And then, you know, when the bills come due, we take care of those things next, our living expenses. And then if there's some left, then we'll save for retirement. And then if we have a little bit of extra, we'll pay extra on our debt. And then if there's anything left over, we give and the bible turns that all upside down and says we cut the give piece of the pie out first we cut the save piece out then and then everything else is it that's what he said in leviticus to them he said when you harvest the first harvest goes to the lord it goes to him the second thing you do is you don't eat all your corn you're going to need some more seed to plant another harvest so don't eat the whole thing put some away so you have a residual harvest in perpetuity so that you have income even when you can't work and then everything else that's left over is yours to live and to have fun and to share how you want to share Now, it's easier with corn than it is with dollars because there wasn't MasterCard, Visa, Discover, and everything else back in Israel. Problem is, it's just way too easy for you now to spend money you don't have yet, money you'll never have, to accelerate you having things that you don't need with no intention of ever paying them back. And then when you have no residual harvest or income, you're going to need to go eat out of somebody else's field because your field isn't producing anymore. 
And that's not the way God designed the economy to work. Socialism is great until you run out of the rich guy's food. And then where are you? (laughs) So verse 9, as the scriptures say, they share freely, they give generously to the poor, their good deeds will be remembered forever. Verse 10, for God is the one who provides two things. The seed for the farmer, which is great. Well, scientists can clone this and that. Awesome. Can they make a cell from nothing? Well, look what they can do with cells and blah, blah, blah. We can do everything God can do, except make the cell from nothing. Once you can do that, come talk to me. Go make your own dirt first. Well, out of the dirt, they can do this and that and cross this with a that and turn up with a that. Awesome. All they're doing is unlocking even more of the capabilities of stuff that God made out of nothing thousands of years ago. God gives us the seed. That's God gave you your life. No, he didn't. You would not be here if he didn't decide for you to be here, says him. He gave you the abilities that you have, the resources that you have. He gave the farmer feet. He gave him legs. He gave him arms. He gave him breath in his lungs. He gave him soil. He gave him seed. He gave him the ability to plant it. And guess what else? He also gave him the ability to, he also gave him the ability to harvest it, to give it to somebody else to convert that wheat into flour and give it to somebody else to convert it into bread. And the whole way through converting those raw talents and abilities to provision, he took care of that too. Well, I, you know, God gave me my life, but I did all the rest of the work. No, you didn't. You're just being a steward of the resource that God gave you. Deuteronomy 18, it is God who supplies you with the physical energy to pursue wealth. Well, I got wealthy on my own. You didn't. It all belongs to him. He's the owner. We're just the stewards. We're the house sitters. He pays the mortgage. In fact, he has no debt, so whatever that works out to. But he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. So here's the big, huge macro principles. And tech team, I'm going to go on the order that you have rather than throwing you a curveball. So you give me point one, and I'll roll with whichever point one I originally gave you. God is the provider of everything, says this passage. Here's the macroeconomic principle. Both the seed and the bread. We're simply the stewards. What do you mean by all that? Very simple. I'm going to give you two extreme messages that you've probably heard from pastors, teachers, preachers from their pulpits. And I want to be careful to say I don't land on either extreme. One is called the prosperity gospel. Do you know what I mean by that? Prosperity gospel means this. People who teach a prosperity gospel, and it's usually pastors, and there's some agenda and motivation there. I won't name names today, but you can go Google, you'll find them. It says this, God's idea for every human is to be wealthy. And the more wealth you have, the holier you are. The less you have, the less blessed and the less holy you are. And so they view this idea that the pathway to wealth is to give to your church. Well, now, who benefits from that primarily? <laughs> the guy who's saying, hey, it works for me. Well, of course, you're using your platform to teach people a concept that's not biblical. Because the Bible is very clear that God has used people from all different economic conditions and classes and has given them all access to contentment. And everything he gave them all was enough in Leviticus you had the owners who had, had the land, and that was enough. You had the workers who worked the land, and their income was from the harvest, and that was enough. And then you had the non-employed, and they were allowed to harvest from the margins, and that was enough. Three different budgets, they were all enough as long as they lived inside of their budget. 
But we don't teach prosperity gospel, nor do we preach. And I have to be careful because I've recognized I could be really misconstrued to be preaching this one, and I want to make sure I'm really not doing this. There's also something called the poverty gospel. That says the less you have, the more you deprive yourself of, the more you give up, the holier you are. So if you have material things or you have wealth or you have a nice house or you have nice possessions, you're less holy than this person over here who lives with so much less. That's not the gospel either. What we teach is stewardship. We teach stewardship. We don't teach the prosperity gospel. The poverty. We teach stewardship. God owns it all. I'm just the steward. It's his house. I get to live in it. He pays all the overhead, but I'm always going to remember that this is not mine. I get to enjoy all the benefits of it, but I'm taking care of his. All the money, all the resource, all the talent, all the gifts, all the opportunity, it all comes from him. I'm simply the steward, and I will one day, he will show up as an accountant and ask me to give an account for all that I stewarded. The more you have, the more you have to account for. The less you have, the less you have to account for. God is a provider of everything. We see this in here. You have to understand that because that's going to get you away from saying, my money, my job, my needs, or this thinking. Well, 10% is God's and 90% is mine. Wrong. 100% is God's. It's not like it's two buckets, you know, mine, yours, and ours. No, it's all his. The first part is holy to him. The rest of the part, I have discretion and liberty, but he gives me guidance. So second principle, macro principle. God generously provides for our basic material needs in all economic conditions. Some of you are like, no, he does not. Well, let me ask you this. The, probably the two words you're hung up on here are the generously and the needs. Here's what a need is. A need is something essential to your survival. If I sat you down and one of the teenagers that I met on the southern tip of Haiti and asked you both to tell me what you need to survive, do you think your answers would differ? No, it might be relative. There is some debate over this. I'm not here to debate. A, a, a need to survive, you need shelter, you need clothing, you need food. I could be convinced you need, but you know, at least in, in where we live, you probably need some access to basic transportation. Health care, medical care. There's probably some fluidity and flexibility there. I get that. Those are needs. That's one category. God generously provides for all our needs. Then there's our wants. That's a second category. Those are things that are not essential to my survival, but things I enjoy, things I like, things that bring happiness. And God gave us life to enjoy. There's nothing wrong with those things. The problem is when those things get out of the priority order. When we go to that thing first, and then we try and squeeze the rest of our budget into the leftovers after we've had all the wants we want. Then there's a third category, which I won't go deep into today. It's called consumerism. And that is money that we spend unwisely and sometimes recklessly on non-essentials in a contentment-chasing posture. Now, God doesn't promise to provide all those things, but you know what I found out in my years of serving Jesus? God has generously provided for all my needs, and so much just a headspace thing. When my list of needs contracts, the things that fall into these other categories expands, and I notice Yes, I have more than one set of clothes. God has generously provided for all my seeds, and I have enough to have seven vests, right? 
and the jacket I now fit into, right? You see, sometimes it's not that God hasn't provided for you those other things. It's just you think they're all needs. You're saying, you know what? If I classified them God way, look, he's given me my needs. He's also given me some wants, a lot of my wants. I'm not entitled to those things. So sometimes it's just he's already providing for you those things. But when you say, well, God hasn't been generous to me, I would want to probe some more and see exactly where all your, your money is going. And it, it, it's the, the way God, well, how does he do it? He gives you a budget. That's your income. That's how he provides, by giving you a budget. Are, is everyone's budget the same? Does that bother you? A couple of you, it doesn't. If it does bother you, you probably don't want to speak up here because you know the right answer and you don't want to out yourself. That's okay. Haven't powerful people throughout history who've had a problem with the way money is distributed, taken power and try and bring new systems to make it perfect. (laughs) We're still figuring that out. But in the parable of the talents, when the the master, the owner comes, does he give everybody in the story, all the the three servants, does he give them all the same budget? No. He gives whatever it is, five, three, and one, ten. He gives one person the most, one person the middlest, and one person the least. The person with the most was content with what they had. They didn't eat it all. They made a return. Their harvest exceeded what God gave them initially, and he said, good job. Second one did the same thing. Third one says, I know you. I know your character, you terrible owner. You demand a harvest. You know, he says, you're not the owner. You want to reap from me things that you didn't work for. So I knew you better than that, and I just buried it. And the issue of that person was that he, his confession that he knew God better indicated he didn't know God at all. Well, God was saying, I've been generous to you. He says, you've been stingy to me. You're trying to take, I have less than they do, therefore you must like me less. And now you want to take from me something you didn't work for? And he's showing he totally didn't get these basic principles. Your budget is enough. It's enough. Well, pastor, it's not. Well, then here's you need to get to the secret, and that is contentment, right? That last principle here, the macro principles. Contentment is God's gift to believers for enduring uncertain economic conditions. How are you going to get through a possible recession and inflation? There's a lot of things you have to do, but it has to, it has to grow out of the seed of contentment with godliness. If you can't come to a place of contentment, you're going to be tempted to stray outside of God's economic fences, and that will make you vulnerable to be damaged in economic conditions. Let me just read to you a few verses that underscore this to you. Verse 8 from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul says, Then you'll always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. Knowing that you have enough is a result of contentment. And for you to ever be content and live inside your budget, there's two categories you're going to have to really wrestle with. One category is the that's not enough category. It's not enough house. It's not enough cabinet. It's not enough yard. It's not enough shoes. It's not enough clothes. It's not enough collectibles. It's not enough travel. It's not enough tickets. It's not enough vacation. It's not enough coffee. It's not enough. Then there's another bucket, and that's the that's enough 
bucket. And for you to find contentment, more things have to travel from that's not enough to that's enough. That's enough sound system. That's enough, that's enough food. That's enough travel. That's enough, that's enough to satisfy me. I could have more, but I don't have to have more to be content. That's enough. You need to start learning this as young as you can. The older that we get, the harder this is to learn. I'm having to learn it with our five-year-old. My wife and I are trying to tag team on this. I don't know if we're doing it successfully. We had a real parenting conversation yesterday. They totally did not ask her permission to say, so pray for me this afternoon. But um, she's not like that. I'm just kidding. Um, she would, she would want you to be inside this because I think this is kind of where the rubber meets the road for us. I have, uh, I'm in a journey right now where I'm not wanting to create a sense of entitlement in my boys. I have a 10-year-old and a 5-year-old. I also have a problem is one of the ways I express my love is through gifts and material things. And so my problem is never finding motivation in my heart to give my boys something. My problem is not overgiving. Because what I find is that there's this organic engine inside of me that wants to give the very best that I can to my boys. So I don't have to set floors for my giving. I have to set ceilings for my giving. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now, there's another message here. Shouldn't that feeling also transfer to the Lord? So is the problem when it comes to giving, if I find giving hard when it comes to the Lord... It's not always a budget problem, it's a love deficit. Because with my boys, no one had to say, listen, you really should give them gifts. You really should take them out to eat. You really should make sure that they've got all the clubs and recreation things that they want. You really should do that. I think, oh, I really don't want to do that. I want them to have nothing. I want to keep all the money for myself and my wife. I want to be stingy to them. Um, I'm going to really have to just grip my teeth really hard and hope that there's a little bit of love. It just flows, and I have to have regulation for that because I could very easily create an entitlement mentality in them. And so it manifests itself in simple things like yesterday, Kendra and I had to kind of divide and conquer. And it was like, all right, um, she's like, I'll take the boys and I'll take them out to do some things. And I'm saying, all right, I'll stay here. I'll catch up on the laundry and blah, 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 blah. We'll, we'll make it go. And um, she took them to Urban Air. This, um, I will describe it to you. It's, it's a place where they can go and jump on things and run around and play on stuff. Where I grew up, when I grew up, it was called Outdoors. The neighborhood, and now it's called 40 bucks is what it's called. And so, you know, she paid the $40 so they can go climb on things and while we still supervise them and fill out all the riders and everything. She took them over there, and I, like I, my five-year-old was just bouncing off the walls. I can't wait to go. I can't wait to go. So they leave. About two hours later, I'm downstairs in the basement. I hear the five-year-old through the floor coming inside, not happy. I'm like, uh-oh. Like, what in the world? What kind of life does this boy think he lives because by the volume, you'd think that he was in pain and suffering. And I'm thinking, do you have any idea what you... And the answer is, no, he does not because he's this many. <laughs> so I, in between the whales, I finally... I was like, Kendra, like, what is up with him? And she's like, well, here's the deal. This started when I would not buy him a $15 Urban Air pizza. So, Suba, yours was $11 inflation, Okay. And I'm like, really? She's like, he saw pizza in there, and he said, Mom, I want a pizza. Can you buy us a pizza? And she's like, and she said, I just told him no, and this reaction, I said, okay, you need to help me here because I want to have a unified force. I wrestle with the same thing. I don't want to always buy the boy everything that he wants. 
to create an entitlement thing. But yet, the truth of the matter is, I mean, I hope this is not too uncomfortable for you. We could have bought the $15 pizza and not gone into bankruptcy. We have the money to buy a $15 pizza. But it wasn't based on whether we had it or we didn't. It was, that's enough or that's not enough. And I said to Kendra, I was like, I run into these situations with the boys all the time where my heart says, I, I probably should say no here, but am I being a bad dad by saying no? Or is it how I say no? Am I? She's like, well, I, don't, I didn't think about it that deeply in the time, but here's the math I did in my head. I'd already paid $40 for them to go play on something that they could otherwise play on for free. I took them there to do that because I wanted to show them love, give them a good time, and God's blessed us with enough to have some margin to do this. She's like, but first of all, I looked at the pizza they served at Urban Air, and it was gross. Second of all, we've already paid for food that we have at home that we could make with some effort, and I just decided what we had already invested in that day was enough. End of story. And I was like, see, I've been handling these things poorly because my default was not true. What I would say with the boys is we don't have money for that today. And that's not true. What I'm saying is there's no budget for it. God hasn't provided. And what I'm really needing to say is there's a that's enough and there's a, there's a that's not enough fence. And we have enough food already. You've had enough entertainment today. And that's just, and some of you are like, you evil, cruel man. I'm trying to save you money later on by teaching my boys that they need to at some point learn that we harvest from this field and we're not going to eat all our seed. So that later on in life, they understand when they have a field of their own that they need to live on their budget. And the world does not owe them entertainment or extra that their field doesn't produce. Okay? Hope you understand what I'm saying. So we're still learning this. The That's enough. God is the provider of everything. Let me give you the micro principles because I'm out of time. You'll remember these ones. Those ones you might not remember. And that's the macro principles. Here's the micro principles. You reap what you sow. You reap after you sow. You reap where you sow. You reap how you sow. You reap more than you sow. That's the biblical micro principles. Where do those come from? The book of 2 Corinthians is just telling you what God laid out in Leviticus. You know that book you all love so much? It's better than melatonin. Read Leviticus and you're out. But Leviticus, let me give you a little bit of an appreciation for it. It's God setting up fences for the Israelites to not get into economic trouble in an economic time of expansion. They had just, he had given them, listen, he brought them out of slavery into generational wealth. Am I telling you the truth? And here's what he's saying, listen, it's all yours, but, and I want to bless you. But you sheep need a fence to stay inside of or you're going to wander into places I can't bless. So because I love you, I'm going to set up some fences here in this book of Leviticus. And these fences are the fences of my favor and protection. If you live inside these fences, there's freedom, there's blessing, there's provision. There's, it's, it's wonderful in here. Camp anywhere you want inside the fence. But if you go over outside the fence, all bets are off. That's where bondage is. That's where, that's where slavery is. That's where destruction is. That's where cursing is. Stay inside the fence. That's what Leviticus is about. God's saying, here's, this is the fence post for how you plant. This is how you give. This is how you save. This is how you retire. All the fences. This is what you do if mildew gets on your clothes and OxyClean hasn't been invented. This is what you do. 
And you know what the book of Numbers is? The Israelites go around and say, eh, I don't really like that fence. So let's, let's move that one. Let's ignore this one. Let's really pay attention to this one. And let's cut that one down. And they blew it all up. And you know what Deuteronomy means? To do over. God goes back and says, all right, everybody back in the pool. Maybe you've learned your lesson. And we all laugh because we're like, we're still not learning these lessons. He's like, here's the fences again. Here's the micro fences you learn. The whole way he wants us to understand the economy works is by sowing and reaping. Now watch this. You harvest what you plant. You reap what you sow. If you plant corn in your garden, what should you expect to grow up out of that corn seed? Yes! Okay, follow me. If you plant apple seeds, what should you expect to grow from those seeds? Yes! If you plant zero seeds, what should you expect? But you're getting quieter as we go along. Anything you say, canon will be used. No, I'm just. If you plant no seeds, what should you expect? No harvest. In modern economic terms, the Bible teaches you that if you don't plant, in other words, if you eat all your seed and you don't plant, You should not expect or depend upon receiving money, benefits, or material goods that you haven't purchased, that you haven't worked for, or that you haven't contributed towards or earned. Do you know what we call it when you receive money, a benefit, or a material thing that you didn't work for, you didn't earn, and you don't, you know what you call it when you get something like that? It's called a gift. If you're depending upon gifts to live, you're outside of God's fence. And yet, you know what the beautiful thing is? You know what the greatest gift the Bible says we've ever received is? You didn't work for him. You didn't earn him. You don't deserve him. Nor is that the basis on which God gives you salvation. Isn't that beautiful? Let me keep going because I'm out of time. Micro principle number two. You harvest where you plant. Every time, there's this crazy principle. You see, every time the Bible talks about economics and we talk about the farmer, the farmer always harvests from the same spot that he put the seed in the dirt. Crazy. If you have a little three-square-foot garden and you put some cucumber seeds in there, which is how my Jamaican pastors say it, cucumber. You put some cucumber seeds in there. Where are you going to go check to find the cucumbers? In the basement, work with me. The attic, no, you're going to go to that little box and you're going to say, there's the cucumbers. There they are. You harvest where you plant. You know where you're not allowed to harvest? You're not allowed to harvest where someone else planted and you didn't. That's the principle here. The principle is you, you harvest what you plant and you harvest, guess what, where you plant it. And so what the Bible teaches is that living inside God's fences means I don't expect a rightful entitlement to a harvest from seeds I didn't plant. I don't go looking into my neighbor's field and say, you know what? 
I've got this dinky little box over here. They've got acres. What are they going to miss if I grab a few ears full of corn? Now, how does that sound to you? What do you call that if you take from someone else's harvest without their permission? Without, that's called stealing, right? Now, is stealing inside God's fence a favor? Hmm. So if you pay $29 a month for a gym membership, how do you feel when you see someone, you're on the treadmill the day after Thanksgiving trying to feel better about yourself? Some joker comes through the door and while they're not looking, they walk right, they get in there without scanning. How do you feel in those moments? Ripped off. I, well, because who's paying for their treadmill? You are. You're paying your $29 a month for the four times a year you go, and here they come. What about if you live in an apartment community with a pool that your rent pays for? Do you like it when people jump the fence and sneak in and swim? Does that bother you? Yeah. Oh, well, let's, let's push it a little further. Do you have a friend who has a Netflix account and a password that they pay for that you use? So was it, yup, altar after service. <laughs> oh, now we're getting a little too close for home. Well, Netflix, Netflix has a big field. They're not going to miss my, hold on now. Do you attend a church where you enjoy of the harvest of the church, but you sow no seed? into the church and you just expect everybody else well they all they don't understand my situation um you know i contribute in other ways by my being here um but you are we all bothered just enough i mean you understand if you're living outside of that fence that's not the way we live if you expect you're gonna live on the budget you think you deserve by having someone else backfill your excessive spending by taking out of someone else. I don't have retirement saved up, so I'm entitled to a retirement because I ate all my seed. That person over there, they were disciplined, and so they have extra, so I deserve some of theirs. To be- That's not God's economy. Now, that bothered you enough, and we're at 1228. I'll move on. Um, you harvest after you plant. You know, none of these stories say the farmer went out, harvested corn, and the next day he planted the seed. You don't harvest before you plant. That makes no sense. You don't eat before that fruit has grown and matured. But you know what? It's now, that was hard back then. They didn't have Visa, MasterCard, and Discover, Target, Starbucks. What company doesn't have some form of credit? There are so many people that you and I both know, maybe not you, who have gotten in the habit of harvesting before they plant. We spend before we're paid. We spend money we don't have yet. And you know why you can do it? Your only option, you have to borrow it from somebody or something. And that credit card you walk around with is not an asset. It is a liability. That credit card says, I have the ability to borrow money that, if you read the terms, that I, 
if you read the terms on what you're supposed to be doing, that, that I have the money to repay. And then once you have that thing, you're not nearly as excited about repaying it. And you know what you end up in? It's called bondage. And now you live with less financial freedom in your life because you've not lived inside of God's fences. Wait until you have it before you eat it. Number four, you harvest how you plant. If you plant generously, you reap generously. If you plant sparingly, you reap sparingly. Your harvest is proportional to the amount of seeds you plant. In modern economic terms, this means I should not expect an extravagant harvest from a stingy planting. Harvest looks like spending on living expenses. Harvest looks like spending, consuming. That's harvest. Living expenses, debt repayment, fun. Planting is giving and saving. We can do both. What resources, what seeds, how do you get seeds to give and to save? You get it by not eating the whole harvest. It's bad thinking to say, I expect a long-term residual, residual extravagant harvest, but I'm not going to plant any seeds in those fields. That makes no sense. I want everything out of this. What have you planted into it? I want this from my church. I want this from my HOA. I want this from my country. I want this from my neighborhood. What have you planted into it? There's so many people expecting a harvest bigger than what they're willing to sow. And how do they get there? The only way that you can get there is you have to live off of somebody else's field. Live in your budget. Number five, you harvest more than you plant. The only way you can do that is by giving and saving. That's the only way. If you eat all your seed all the time, eventually you will run out of seed. And the only way that you can harvest more than you plant is by planting things and planting some of your seed in things that can grow exponentially over time. 36% of Americans today who are 40 and under have $0 saved for retirement. $0. It's not because they can't afford to. It's because it's not a priority. Do you know what kind of a problem that's going to cause in 10, 15, 20 years? It's going to be a big problem. So pastor, summarize because we're 1232. You got it. Live inside your budget. The only way you can do that is by saying my budget is enough for me because I am content. Avoid debt. Spend less than you earn and spend after you earn. And then budget with giving and saving in mind. Because if you only budget with living expenses and fun in mind, you'll never get around to having enough money protected to give and save. If you do those first, then you have the rest of your economic pie, or if you like cake better, economic chocolate cake. Your budget has to fit in there, and that's enough. Who told you it wasn't? Well, Pastor, how do I know? Here's my question for you right now. Don't answer out loud. Do you have all you need? Don't answer out loud. Do you really, in your heart of hearts, do you have all you need to survive? And then my second question is, if so, are you truly content? If the answer is no, 
this is a place for you to grow because it's showing you an area of your life that the Holy Spirit wants to resource you in. And once you find that contentment, it's going to make approaching recession, inflation, it's going to make it a non-issue to your contentment because you'll be able to pull back on your spending without any of your contentment. You'll be able to adjust your expenses. In my lifetime, I know what it's like as a family to have four incomes and one income and zero incomes. In my married lifetime, I spent six consecutive months unemployed where there was no income, and yet God provided all my needs, but it tested what I thought a need was. Well, how did you survive? I followed these other principles. We had always lived inside of our budget, and we saved money so that when the downturn hit, we had some savings to apply to that. And guess what? We ate differently when we were living off our savings than when we were when we were living in plenty. Well, how can you do that? Contentment. I was just content with TV dinners as I was with steak. With soup heated up in the microwave as I was, with going out and someone bringing it to the table, just as content. That allowed me to approach those things with wisdom. If you live outside of God's fences by living outside your budget, you'll always depend on harvesting where you haven't planted or eating from someone else's field in order to live. If you spend more than you earn or you spend before you earn, you'll likely become in bondage to debt because that's the only way you can stay in the habit of spending more than you earn or before you earn. If you spend on fun, debt, and living expenses first without considering planting through saving and giving, two things are going to happen, one or the other or both. You'll either enter your retirement years underfunded or you'll forfeit the residual blessings of righteousness from God's economy or both. And I want you to avoid those things. How do I do it? Live inside God's fences. Because you plant what you sow, where you sow, after you sow, how you sow, and more than you sow. And the only way you'll be able to do that for the long term is to find contentment. Otherwise, it's going to be mechanical. It'll work, but you won't be content long term. Find a contentment, whether you have a lot or a little or in the middle. And then all these other things will come together for you, regardless of the condition. And when things take off again, you won't be like, all right, let's now just go spend more again. You're going to say, you know what? Like, let's, let's live inside of our budget. Let's live inside of our budget. Conclusion, God's ultimate purpose in supplying us with more than we need. Here's why. He wants to make it possible for you to be as generous as he is. And he knows you can't be generous if you never have enough. You can't even be generous if you have only enough. You have to be able to have enough and then some. Because God wants you to live like he is. Because God so loved the world that he what? He gave. Giving is central to being like your dad. He says, I'll make it possible for you to be as generous as I am by supplying you the ability to give. And I want to just give this word of balance. If you've been living outside of God's fences, I'd like to tell you there's a quick fix for this. And snap your fingers. It's not magic. It's going to take work. It's going to take honesty. It's going to take accountability, some discipline, some education. Our church is getting ready to invest significantly in that in 2023 to bring resources to you to help you along this journey. I can't ask you to think about giving if you're already living outside your budget. Giving is not going to automatically fix your budget. It's going to accelerate you towards bankruptcy if you're already living on outside of God's fences. But we want to give you the raw biblical principles and bring the teaching, the support, the encouragement the fellowship, the accountability to your life to help you make some baby steps so you can truly say, like, you can say, I'm enjoying contentment and I'm now able to to give, to save, to spend, to live, to have fun within my budget and I'm now now content and I'm detached from the whole... I don't want your bank account to tell you how happy you can be. 
I don't want your 401k or 201k or 801k to tell you how successful you are or you aren't. I want you to experience and enjoy the contentment that only God can bring that is detached from the size of your bank account, the number of shoes you have, and things of that nature. Worship team, let's come. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we lay our hearts before you today. This is a lot to dine on this morning. But you know that this is you know, the one of the two times a year that we're able to really talk about economics in a way that I hope is helpful to everyone. Lord, I pray that you see our hearts today, that we want to be content. We want to be less anxious about our money. We don't want to be ignorant and live in a bubble. But we don't want to be so vulnerable to economic news in terms of the, the level of contentment, joy, and purpose we feel in the way that we live. And the only way that can happen is if your character grows inside of us. And so, Holy Spirit, we know that you're the one that produces this kind of fruit in us. And so our commitment to you is as we feel you nudging us on this topic, we're simply going to just say okay to you. Lord, I pray that maybe some conversations occur this week around some of these topics in the lives of my brothers and sisters. For those that are, have learned these lessons, I pray that today is an affirmation and an encouragement to keep going. For those who are new to this idea of budgeting God's way. I pray that you'll inspire them to dig deeper into the Bible and have, a, have some conversations with Christian friends this week where they can just be open and vulnerable about their different ideas and questions. There's so many things we didn't cover today, but your word offers us so much to help guide us. Lord, I pray that we as a church, uh, that we as a church will honor you in the way that we live because I know my lost and dying neighborhood needs to look at somebody in their neighborhood who's able to have contentment even in these uncertain economic times. I know that that's attractive to lost people who base their identity on their success and their money and their income and their things, and they use that to measure their successfulness. I pray that you'll use Kendra and I and our boys as a light that draw people to you through this, that we can point people to you as a result of what you've taught us about finances. And if there's anyone here this morning or listening online, you don't know Jesus as your savior, and you want to be able to have all access to the power of God, the character of God, the nature of God, to grow you into the woman and the man and the boy or the girl that he's meant for you to be, I invite you to come to Jesus right now and just confess these things to him, that you know you're a sinner, that you know he can save you, and that you know that he will save you if you ask him. And I want you to just use your words and confess that to him this morning. As you confess that, that's your commitment to repent. You're saying, I'm turning away from being my own leader, running life my own way, and I surrender to your way. You can pray a simple prayer that says, Jesus, I know I've sinned against you. Please forgive me. I'm ready to be saved. And I know you can save me because you died on the cross in my place. You've paid off all my debt to your father. And because of that, you can give me a righteousness I can't produce in myself. So Jesus, send your Holy Spirit to live inside of me and begin today transforming me gradually into your image. You're the leader. I'm the follower. Amen. And if you prayed that prayer today, you are gloriously, marvelously, completely saved. And before you leave here today, please tell somebody about that decision. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. If you're willing and able, will you stand with me this morning? Our team's going to come and prepare to receive our time. I know you're thinking, Pastor, you're really going to end on it with a giving. You're going to end with an offering. Absolutely. It's a part of our worship. So I just encourage you this morning. Uh, if your heart is ready and willing and your spirit is ready and willing, you know, to be able to participate in giving. Those of you who have already participated in giving this week digitally, thank you so much for doing that. Keith is going to lead us. Keith and his team are going to lead us in a closing song of worship. Our prayer team is here. If you would like prayer, please come right now. We'll pray with you about anything might have had to do with the message or nothing to do with the message this morning.
And then after that, Pastor James is going to come and dismiss us. Let's give the Lord thanks today. Father, we have so much to be thankful for. You truly have supplied our needs. I do, though, allow for God. There are some here this morning, they don't have the, they don't see provision for their needs. So, God, I pray today that you will defend your reputation for being Jehovah Jireh. There are many reasons why. Those are not my main concern this morning. My concern is for those who don't have the basic shelter, clothing, food that they need. Lord, I pray that that need, once it's gotten to your ears, that you also make sure it gets on the radar of another brother or sister in Christ so that we can do what we can with what we have to help resource, whether it's through generosity, through donation, through partnership, through advice, through support, through prayer, whatever we can do to carry some of that load of our brothers and sisters so that we can be part of the instrument, just like the Corinthian church, just like the Macedonian churches, that we can share some of what you've given us. We have plenty left over to share with those in need. So Lord, we look for those opportunities today as well. Help us to have wisdom and discretion in how we answer those calls. Father, we thank you for all these things. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. God bless you. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.